what Fury is looking to do is just provide the ability to pull G's, fly high subsonic, subsonic, we're not going super with this thing, but go high subsonic, fly at fighter altitudes with fighter performance, and then we could end up using it in a number of different ways, just like a manned aircraft is. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. Later in the program, Andrew Van Timmeren, formerly of Blue Force, now part of Andrew Industries, joins us to discuss the future of uninhabited combat aircraft. And Dr. Tom Carrico, who is with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, with an update on global air and missile defenses. And we also have this week's headlines in air power. And as usual, it's all powered by GE. From America's first jet engine to the revolutionary three-stream adaptive cycle engine, GE Aerospace has been delivering firsts for military propulsion for more than 100 years. Learn about the latest innovation at geaerospace.com XA100. And Bell sponsors the Defense and Aerospace Reports daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. JJ, what's in the news this week on All Wings Considered? Well, Vago, it's selected acquisition report season, that time of year when the government dumps a whole bunch of data out there on its procurement programs and how well they are doing. Lots of news in there for the air power folks, particularly with regard to the F-35. We learned from this year's selected acquisition report that the cost of an F-35A is down to $71.5 million, although that's fiscal 2012 dollars, which is what the whole program is denominated in. That still brings it in just under $100 million in today's dollars, so go check your sofa cushions. The report, which was as of the end of December, shows 3,374 F-35s to be built, although a number of countries have indicated interest or put in orders since then. And as hinted in a footnote in last year's SAR, the F-35 is now expected to operate in United States service through the year 2088. Now, that's 11 more years than previously expected, so the cost of the overall program has gone up because you have to pay for all those jets for those extra years. It's now a $1.3 trillion program in today's money. In other F-35 news, the plane finally passed its the last technical hurdle before going into its full-rate production decision. It's called the Joint Simulation Environment Runs for Score. We expect that full-rate production decision early next year, but it doesn't look like full-rate is going to be that many more airplanes than they're already building. In other news coming out of the selected acquisition reports, the F-15EX now costs $94 million apiece. Very interesting choice there because that's about the same as an F-35. Different airplanes with different merits, possibly different audiences. You pays your money and you takes your choice. DOD is continuing to develop hypersonic aircraft. GE Aerospace and their partners, CFM, received a $29.7 million contract for materials research on advanced engines. You may remember that GE unveiled a combination ramjet-scramjet at the Paris Air Show this year. Wouldn't be surprised if that's what that money was for. And in the continuing saga of the NH-90, the helicopter that was supposed to take over Europe by storm and has resulted just in long lines at the return queue, the Italian Navy has taken delivery of its last, which completes its fleet, 
That's good news. On the other hand, Australia has decided to permanently ground all of its NH-90s immediately. They had been waiting to buy Blackhawks to replace them. The Australians have decided, no, we're just going to ground them now and worry about replacing them later. That's how complicated it is or how much it costs to keep those aircraft in the air. Vago? Astonishing. And it's a very unfortunate thing to hear about what's happened with the NH-90. A lot of hopes for that airplane. And unfortunately, so many disappointed customers from a company that has historically been able to develop some good rotorcraft. Let me take you to the SAR, uh, the Selected Acquisition Report. God, exciting reading all the time. Uh, I can't JJ. wait for the movie to come out. I can't wait for the movie to come out. It's it's really riveting. It's a real nail-biter. So in the case of the F-35, right, I mean, it's always important to know whether they're then dollars or when dollars. And, and obviously, it looks like the airplane is coming down on the cost curve uh, in a meaningful way, even if it is not necessarily reflected in today's dollars as such, right? I mean, we're still using an old benchmark, although I suspect that pretty soon we'll rebaseline the program. What does this ultimately mean Right, because we are extending the life of this program, but you could also say that this program is going to be in production for a very long period of time, right? So, you know, this production line is going to be running for some time. So, when you say you're going to retire it in 2088, okay, well, some of the last airplanes you'll be delivering won't be for another 15 or almost 20 years, right? You know, and and Mm -hmm. we're going to have B 52s that we we retire (laughs) at like 80 years old. It's so. Unbelievable. And the math drives you in a very interesting place, because if the aircraft are in service now for an extra 11 years, well, one other thing that the Selected Acquisition Report said is that they haven't changed the expected lifetime of the airframes. They're still expected to last 30 years. So in order to have viable airplanes by the end, you have to extend production so that your aircraft aren't 30 years old. If the service life extends 11 years, production has to extend 11 years. We've been saying for a long time, they're not building enough airplanes per year to meet the demand. If suddenly you're building those aircraft over 25 years instead of 14 years, a lower production rate lets you meet all of the known orders. So the math suddenly pops back into place when the program is extended. And I want to go to the F-15EX question as well, right? I mean, we heard, have heard from General Wilsbach uh, and a number of other Air Force leaders that actually with the E-Pause package, the F-15EX becomes a bomb truck that is very useful for the U.S. Air Force, right? Enormous payload capacity, uh, tremendous range, uh, and actually pretty extraordinary performance also. So even though there are those who argue the day of this jet is OB, that it's a fourth generation fighter, it's a fourth generation fighter with the right electronic warfare package that starts to become relevant for you? And does it in a different cost profile than a stealthy airplane does? How does this number change the discussion around the jet? Because there are some people who look at $94 million and go eat gads. And there are other people who are going to go, I don't know, not a bad deal for a really capable airplane. Given that the F-35A and the F-15EX do very different things, the fact that they're the same price, essentially, makes an interesting decision less for the United States Air Force, which, of course, does have to do financial trade-offs, but for foreign militaries who are considering what does their next aircraft buy look like? Can they move up to a heavy twin like the F-15EX for the same money they were going to spend on F-35A? And would they rather have the increased capacity or would they rather be able to operate seamlessly with other F-35s? It really would seem to complicate the equation 
for foreign aircraft buyers. And joining us now is Dr. Tom Carrico of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's one of the nation's leading experts on air and missile defenses and indeed leads the Missile Defense Project at one of America's truly great think tanks. And he joins us roughly monthly for an update on global air and missile defense headlines and issues. Tom, it's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Great to be back, Vago. Let me start off with... Russia's war on Ukraine. A lot's been going on. The Ukrainian counteroffensive continues to grind on, and in fact, in some cases, appears to have been gaining momentum. But I want to go to the Russians. The Russians are still inundating on a regular, every other day, there's a massive uh, strike on uh, Ukrainian cities and territories. It is very taxing. We heard from Sam Bendet on uh, Monday from the Center for Naval Analyses that actually one of the recent Shahed raids, about half of those made it through to their targets. The Ukrainians have been using a variety of air and missile uh, defenses in a very layered approach, all the way from guns to jamming and what have you for small drones. They've also been using the NASAMS uh, system, but it looks like we're using some of the older model. Uh, AMRAMs now to equip that inventory. How are Ukraine's air and missile defenses holding up? Do they need more fire units? Is it just more about rounds? Are we running out of rounds as an alliance? I mean, where are we right now as we try to help our ally defend themselves? I think actually the remarkable thing is that they have been uh, holding up the degree to which they have. I saw that news story that you referenced, Vago, in terms of, I think it was the latest big salvo. And the Ukrainians claimed that they shut down a uh, some decent percentage of those. Uh, I remember my colleague uh, Ian Williams over here at CSIS wrote an article late this summer entitled, uh, quote, Russia's not going to run out of missiles, end quote. And uh, that unfortunately seems to be the case. And I will say, by the way, the North Korea-Russia cooperation, the body language on Putin, you know, sitting next to little Kim was pretty fascinating. But, you know, whatever it is that the North Koreans are going to be supplying, whether it's artillery or whether it's something more interesting, they've been, you know, testing, I, I think, about the 80-plus tests uh, that they conducted in 2022, which is more than all years combined by the North Koreans is a kind of a marketing bazaar, and maybe that's paying off uh, for the North Koreans. But I say that because whatever whatever shenanigans are going on there in that cooperation, assuming it is only a bilateral cooperation, North Korea is presumably going to be getting something uh, out of that well, and so that presumably affects our calculus for you know homeland missile defense as well. But staying with Ukraine for just a just a moment, you know, again, you talked about buying and borrowing. Uh, AMRAMs from whoever's out there. The good news is that air and missile defense is not just an American idiosyncrasy anymore, and that there are countries that we can go to and that have been helping here. Germany, for instance, has you know made an announcement recently of doubling their production of one of their lower tier air, air defense systems. So the answer is, of course, they want more firing units. Of course, they want more rounds. Uh, it's perhaps a miracle that it's you know gone on this long and they've been able to survive. But, you know, with every, I think the last uh, Ukraine aid announcement was on Friday. I think it was this past Friday for, and, you know, of course it included what? Lots of missiles and air defenses in it, you know, AIM-9s. We're calling it now HIMARS ammunition, which is, uh, I think, an interesting euphemism for Gimblers and maybe, maybe attackums. Uh, so that's interesting. Uh, of course, the apparent announcement uh, that we are are sending attackums to Ukraine is a, is a big step forward. But, but I'll go back to the capacity question, which is, and I've said all along, of course, we want the Ukrainians to have greater reach, greater standoff, greater missile range. 
the unfortunate truth is that we don't have tons and tons of capacity of ATACMs. This is not a belt-fed missile. And so, but even, you know, a little bit goes a long way in terms of affecting Russian calculus and uh, driving up uncertainty. To that quote about the Russians not running out of missiles, let's look at that other side of the equation. Ukraine was able to mount a significant air attack on Russia's Black Sea Naval Headquarters. They also took out a major Russian air defense center in Crimea. Do you expect this is going to lead the Russians to deploy more systems to the front? Or how are we seeing them adapt to Ukraine's offensive capability? It is adapting. And I think one one obvious uh, way in which it's adapting is on the, the passive defense side. Uh, I'm not quite sure what to make about it. I'm not smart enough to understand what a bunch of tires on top of a Russian bomber really does <laughs> to protect it uh, on the runway. It lengthens but, the takeoff roll somewhat. Yeah. But, you know, whether it's that, whether it's moving things around, whether it's, uh, you know, hiding or hardening or what have you, in the near term, because you don't just have tons and tons of active air defenses, ours or theirs, it was, of course, gratifying, JJ, that to, to see the reported uh, uh, attack on a, on a Russian, I think, S-400 uh, recently. I think it was in Crimea. And so that's that's all for the good. Uh, but in, in the near term, I think it's more of the, you know, what was we called distributed operations. And so you're seeing both the enormous and sustained demand signal for active defense, while also you know, more and more imaginative adaptations on the passive defense side. Tom, next week is the Association of the United States Army's annual convention, and it's a leading gathering of certainly U.S. land power officials. There's a lot of debate and a lot of discussion about the lessons obviously drawn from this war. The United States Army is the lead service for tactical missile defense. What do you expect, or more rightly, what do you hope to hear from Army leadership about air and missile defenses. You know, just on Monday's show, retired Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, you know, gave us sort of the five urgent things the United States has to do to be able to prevent losing a Pacific war. And one of his top items not only was getting closer to our allies and partners like Japan, but it was also, hey, look, we need defenses against hypersonic systems that are critically important. What do you hope to hear from Army leadership at this show? Yeah, so I'll certainly be at the AUSA uh, conference next week. All the cool kids are uh, are going to be hanging out. The top modernization priorities, you know, that come to mind—not simply modernization, but modernization and operational. Obviously, long-range fires. You know, I'm sure there'll be questions about uh, the LRHW, which you know today's uh, October and it didn't get fielded in September as the aspiration was for the Army's hypersonic weapon. But you know what? They had, a, they had a, a test fluke. They'll get through that and they'll they'll move forward. On the air and missile defense side, obviously, you know, lots of attention, I think, especially on IFPEC, the Army's cruise missile uh, efforts and how that's plugging into IBCS, where all that's standing and all of that and a couple other planets have to align in order for the uh, Defense of Guam uh, initiative to carry forward on the schedule that uh, the Admiral Aquilino uh, wants. I'm happy to say I'm going to be having uh, General Charles Flynn over to CSIS the day after AUSA on the 12th. Uh, so we'll we'll no, no doubt dig into those uh, subjects uh, as well. But it's interesting, you know, you mentioned the 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 Army is the lead service for right really air air base air defense. It's it's very interesting to me to see the Air Force beginning to have at least some experiments in that front. You know, they're testing the Air Force is having a contractor come out and testing. Uh, a radar at, at White Sands Missile Range 
uh, and that's that's I think an interesting development as we think about how we come after the enormous need for increased capacity uh, all over the place. So those those are certainly some things you're gonna of course you're gonna hear a lot of attention to recruitment and you know what does that mean? How can the army be all can be and also you know be big kind of themes? Uh, those are gonna be in in uh, in full flush. But those are a couple couple topics that uh, that I'll be listening for. This is an air power podcast, and we are guilty of focusing a lot on things with wings, perhaps at the expense of other subjects. So what should people who are listening to us know that has been going on in the air and missile defense realm lately that we may not have talked about? Well, if that's the biggest sin of an air power podcast is to talk about things with wings, I think that's probably okay as as sins go. But look, on, on the missile defense side, starting with MUD and, and going to space, recognizing this is a short podcast, counter UAS still remains a massive, massive problem. So, so Vago, back to your question as well. Uh, I know there will be tons of attention to that. How do we operationalize it? How do we train and equip uh, sufficient counter UAS capacity to get it out to the force, to get it out across the Army, but also to get it out to the joint force because, and you know, you just have to watch some Twitter video from Ukraine to recognize that, that that's an every everybody problem. Uh, the, the the cruise missile defense, obviously, that's a huge thing. I also need to be listening for the homeland uh, cruise missile defense uh, piece of that. It's percolating. There was an experiment uh, in August, I think it was, that was uh, recently reported, and I think there may have been some other tests. Uh, in a similar vein coming up. So continuing to advance that, uh, not just for Guam, but also for places like Hawaii and, yes, the uh, CONUS uh, as well. Uh, but certainly the U.S.-Japan cooperation. So in recent weeks with uh, uh, Kushida over here, uh, the Biden administration announced, and then it was reflected shortly thereafter in the, the Japanese budget uh, announcement, a pretty uh, substantial investment over some uncertain number of years on the part of Japan, I think for 75 billion yen, which is like 507 uh, million dollars, uh, which is real money for glide phase intercept for hypersonic threats. And so the, the, the putative, the planned co-development effort between the United States and Japan on GPI, I think is one of the most important recent uh, developments. Uh, I, I want to flag that while this is important from an allied perspective, from a partnership perspective and all that, uh, we, got, we need to keep our eye on the ball for schedule uh, because the hypersonic threat like the cruise missile threat is, it's this is not really something we can put off for another decade. And unfortunately, that appears to be the timeline that we're on for the 2034 timeframe. And then later this month, um, uh, missile defense folks will be out in uh, in the Pacific uh, talking at the multinational conference uh, where folks from all, from all around the world, allies and partners come together to to hash out uh, these kinds of issues. So Australia, uh, Japan, uh, lots of other folks in the Pacific and, of course, from, from Europe and the Middle East uh, will be there. Dr. Tom Carrico, Director of the Air and Missile Defense Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Always great to have you on, Tom. Thanks for coming back. Well, thanks, Vago and JJ and his uh, again, as uh, General Milley says, uh, none of this matters if you're dead, and that's why you need air defense. <laughs> Exceptionally well said, Tom. <laughs> Outstanding. Thanks very much, Tom. It's a pleasure having you on. Thank you. Likewise. Always a pleasure. Talk to you guys soon. Cheers. Thanks. Good night. And hey, if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts. Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, 
The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our new technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. One of the major themes of the Air Force Association's recent airspace cyber conference and trade show was uninhabited aircraft. And the exhibit hall was packed with innovative approaches with an eye toward the services priority collaborative combat aircraft initiative. Joining us today is Andrew Scar Van Timmeren, now of Anduril Industries. After leaving the United States Air Force, Andrew started Blue Force Technologies, a company dedicated to making a high-performance unmanned aircraft to act as an adversary in fighter training. That program was recently acquired by Andrew, where Andrew is now the Director of Air Dominance Systems. Scar, welcome to the Air Power Podcast. Vago, it's great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to share a little bit about our story and where we think we're headed. Really uh, interested in doing that. I should tell the audience that you're also a former F-22 pilot, certainly uh, still one of the coolest airplanes out there and pretty much the pinnacle of air combat. The notion of unmanned aircraft has been around for uh, a couple of decades, right? You could go back to the Ryan Fire B for all of those who are interested. One of the highest uh, mission counts ever, I think, was a Ryan Fire B uh, in Vietnam. Walk us through where the idea of a dedicated air combat adversary drone came from. No, Vaga, it's a great question. And the historical context is really important. You're exactly right. Unmanned systems have been flying for decades in support of the Department of Defense. And so Blue Force Technologies, rewinding the clock to its founding in 2011, Scott Bledsoe, former of Scaled Composites, Gulfstream, and some other companies, started his own business to build uh, high-performance carbon fiber composite aerostructures for others. Did that for a handful of years, incredibly successful growing bootstrap business, and decided to continue to build parts for others, but also in parallel get after in developing the intellectual property that would have Blue Forces backing behind it. And as a red-blooded American who cares greatly about our security, Scott took a look at the ecosystem of what was out there from an unmanned systems perspective, and this is about the 2017 timeframe and saw that there are a whole host of long loiter ISR-focused UASs out there. You think about the MQ-1, MQ-9, Global Hawk, things like that. And there was a big white space and opening in this high-performance unmanned system spot in the performance uh, as you increase in performance as far as airspeed uh-huh. and capabilities. Those in 2017, 2018 came with this idea and decided to go pitch it to and anybody who would listen within the Air Force principally, right, as the service in charge of the air domain, why not start there? And pitched this idea of, of a nap of the earth, high-speed, high-performance ISR aircraft at the time it was called actually the Grackle. This is some deep intel for you, Vago. And they right. pitched this idea of the Grackle, and it was hit with the feedback of, hey, there's no real requirement for this high-performance nap of the earth kind of vehicle. And then in the hallway after a brief with who was at the time General Holmes, three-star General Holmes became the commander of Air Combat Command, uh, somebody caught him in the hallway and said, hey, this is a pretty neat idea. Maybe you should pivot it to using this aircraft as unmanned adversary air. So now you conduct some research. It's now the 2018, 2019 timeframe, and you realize that there is a real opportunity as far as getting after meaningful training for those like my friends who are still flying. And I appreciate you calling me. I certainly am a former F-22 pilot, washed up, has been without a doubt. 
And uh, we do not provide relevant training as far as capability or capacity. And so capability being performance, mission systems like radar, IR, cost effectiveness, and then at mass that gets after the cost effectiveness ability to put iron airborne. And so that turned into, well, let's take this thing off nap of the earth and put it up in fighter airspeeds, fighter altitudes with the ability to carry fighter mission systems, as I alluded to. That turned into an SBIR opportunity. And so we surveyed how to get into the DoD market greater with this idea with funding to back it. And as they looked at how you would do that, AFWorks as an organization has put out a pretty awesome roadmap of how you can follow the SBIR process to get your idea out there. And ultimately what we ended up doing is following that exact process Blue Force did. Started the phase one, uh, started using that time to door knock around Air Combat Command and other places like the Pentagon. That's where I met them actually the first time was I was in uniform and heard this pitch. In, you know, Vagos, you know, once you hear an innovative idea, you can't like unhear it. And so uh-huh. heard this idea about how we could use this really good confluence in the 2020s here of amazing advanced manufacturing and awesome, fast, iterative software development in order to right. create these increased capabilities. And so that's how this came about. So what are some of the roles, other roles, Envision or Fury, right? I mean, uh, unlike you in an F-22, right? Even with Combat Edge, you know, 9G, a little bit more than 9G, not a lot more than 9G, right? I mean, obviously with an uninhabited fighter, you can pull as much as the structure will bear, you know, and you have smaller mass often in these in these platforms. But sort of more broadly, what are the other roles you guys envision for the Fury airframe? We think about other aircraft. Actually, I want to go back to the Ryan Firebee in derivatives of that were used as ISR platforms, as other aircraft in, in Vietnam. And now you can tie that lineage directly to target drones in other use cases here in 2023. And now if you think about an F-16, so now we're getting into widely proliferated manned asset. It can be used for suppression of enemy air defenses or seed. It can be used for offensive counter OCA, defensive counter DCA, but can also be used on that same day as a trainer. You just have to have the performance and the capabilities when it comes to mission systems, power generation, et cetera, in order to then earn your right to play in those performance areas. And so what Fury is looking to do is just provide the ability to pull Gs, fly high subsonic, subsonic, we're not going super with this thing, but go high subsonic, fly at fighter altitudes with fighter performance, and then we could end up using it in a number of different ways, just like a manned aircraft is. Going back to your F-22 experience, you certainly went up against inhabited aggressor aircraft. What is there about the Fury that can improve on the fighters that you were going up against as a pilot? Now, that's a great question, JJ. One of the things that is immediately coming to mind is the ability to get capacity airborne. So when it comes to advanced software mated with advanced manufacturing here, we can put up really reasonably performing air vehicles using capabilities that are important for us to train and use day in and day out while not breaking the bank. And that is one of the things that I'm excited about with Anderil and Blue Force coming together is how we do want to accelerate and bring meaningful capability forward without being necessarily that platinum plated solution. We have the opportunity here to put up a lot of mass with relevant capability Mm -hmm. 
while offsetting some of that exquisite cost point that we're all maybe too comfortable with. Now, if I have this right, this is the design that you used to call red medium. The yeah. word medium is very interesting because it seems to indicate that it's part of a family of various sized UAVs. What does that whole portfolio look like that you're planning? You have done your research, JJ, which I appreciate. So red medium is, so the grackle turned to red medium and then red medium turned into fury. And in the very, very, very early concept design stages that Blue Forest went through in the development of what has become fury, you take a look at high, medium, low, as far as mix of capabilities, capacity carry mission systems, et cetera. And we really fell upon, this is all internal in the, the fury is what has emerged out of this just internal give and take, but you want to hit that exactly what we would call the knee in the curve of price and capability. Now you can absolutely pay more, build more, go faster, higher, longer, et cetera. And you can also pay less, get less, go slower, lower, carry less. And we really just found based on that trade study we did internally, this design called red medium was that best balance of performance at cost. Uh, and so that's what we carried forward throughout. And now our post-critical design review on the bandit program and continue to move forward. Scar, I want to take you to the CCA or the Collaborative uh, Combat Aircraft. Obviously, it's Secretary Kendall's, uh, one of his top priorities to equip each next generation air dominance aircraft with whether it's two, three, or more of these unmanned platforms modular so that they can perform a variety of different applications, whether a, a wingman capacity, a kind of like the quail role of electronic deception, electronic warfare, ISR, you name it, a whole, whole breadth of missions. Talk to us a little bit about how your approach and the fury is going to help shape your guys' approach to this larger, more capable family of platforms that the Air Force is interested in? No, that's a good question, Vago. When it comes to Fury as an autonomous air vehicle, we are maximizing the utility of open architecture to facilitate the use cases that a customer may want for the air vehicle itself. And so when you leverage the open architectures that the government has created in collaboration with the industry, you have the opportunity to bring in different mission systems and as best as you possibly can, there is still some integration. I'm not saying every system is the same size, weight, power, et cetera, but when it comes to data flows, you can try to get as best you possibly can to plug and play to maximize the utility of it based off of the missions that you want to get after. And that also dovetails into the autonomy as well. So I think it's, it's easy to often talk about the air vehicle and then the radar, IR, other capabilities that, that may be carried on board. These aircraft don't have people. That should, this is like the John Madden quote of this podcast is like, you say the obvious, it's an unmanned system. So the software is what flies it. And that's where we see that there's a real opportunity to leverage our mission autonomy capabilities or our third-party mission autonomy capabilities where you want to remove that operator from inside the loop and put them on the loop in order to facilitate its mission success. I'm going to dive into that for just 60 more seconds, if you don't mind. So when it comes to inside the loop, I think about like a Global Hawk or a, uh, an MQ-9, where you have somebody with a stick and a throttle, and they are deeply ingrained in the exact control of, of that aircraft. Uh, and you may also have multiple handoffs between launch and recovery, and then ultimately mission execution. When it comes to taking the person 
out of inside the loop and put them on the loop, they can send a command using mission autonomy, like go do X, and the aircraft will go do that. It will hold out to the hold airspeed or modulate as required with safety of flight in mind and ultimately accomplish that mission without somebody having a hands-on stick and throttle. And so that's why I think one of the amazing opportunities of mission autonomy layered in with an open architecture aircraft like Fury to create capabilities of increased mass without overtaxing the manpower. So we focus on the hardware piece of this, but part of bringing together a portfolio of uninhabited aircraft is the software and the logic behind it. How are you developing that? Absolutely. So one of the things that Andrew is focused on is providing that optionality to the customers that we have. And so as clearly understood, Andrew is, is a software company, software first, has developed some amazing mission autonomy capabilities that have flown in real world context. And so I think that is an amazing opportunity that others can leverage on a, upon their systems. Fury is also an open architecture aircraft. And so Fury can bring in mission autonomy that Andrew has, but it also is built to facilitate the software of other third parties in the mission systems of third parties. And so Andrew is incredibly excited to provide the varied use cases and the varied capabilities ranging from software, hardware, it could be integrated, but it also could not. We're just looking to provide those options to those commanders to facilitate their maximum success. So that's technology that can accompany whatever size platform you decide to produce in the future. That's exactly right. The scalability of the software is there and the open architecture of the hardware is there to maximize its utility no matter who wants to use it. Let me just ask just a brief follow-up, right? I mean, you guys pride yourself on developing your own software for this. What's the approach? Is it a broader set of software that you then individually modify for platforms like this? Or is there a common software library that you tailor from, or are you engineering that ground up for each one of the specific applications in the portfolio? So Lattice for Mission Autonomy is built to provide awareness as well as the ability to command and control assets in, in all domains. And so the integration at the edge within that particular asset is meant to be as low lift as possible so that you can easily extend it to those assets. And so the answer is there is clearly integration when it comes to any software, but we're trying to minimize that impact so we can maximize all domain utility of, of Lattice for Mission Autonomy. Let me ask one more follow-up, Scar. You know, one of the big questions, whether about collaborative combat aircraft or anywhere that we're going, is whether or not we can operate in a fully emissions-denied environment, right? A full MCON alpha, somebody is jamming you and you need full autonomy. Where are you guys and how are you envisioning and thinking about what that aircraft looks like, right? Because if we're going to bet big that a whole bunch of these autonomous aircraft are going to go forward and be able to do this, we have to be able to assume that it's going to be able to do it without access to GPS signals, without access to comm signals, right? We can't have an 8,000-mile screwdriver going into the back of that Fury 3 in order for it to be able to do its job. So how are you guys working through that part of the problem? Yeah, that's a, that's really a combination, a little bit of, of technical, but a lot of policy as well. And we're, we're eager to work with the Air Force and the Department of Defense and interested parties on that. Because as an example, you're exactly right, Vago. In current context, if a MQ-9 loses link 
It may follow lost link procedures, which may include coming all the way back home. And if we're pushing forward into a highly contested environment, do you suddenly want all your fury to turn around or in even just a, around the flagpole at home and we're testing out new capabilities? Do we want it to do that? And that really is a policy. That's a policy uh, question that we are eager to work on with the FAA with the Air Force, with relevant agencies who have jurisdiction over that. So I think that's that's more of a policy thing that we're eager to work on vice a technology problem. So where is the program today? Where are you in development, in testing, and frankly, in sponsorship from DOD? Absolutely. So Blue Force Technologies brought in with Anderold the contract we have, which is called the Bandit Program. So the BANA program is led by Air Force Research Lab Area Vehicles Directorate, so AFRL-RQ, and that is the contract, the Stratfy AFWorks contract that we've been operating under since 2021. And we are excited to continue to work under that contract funded, uh, continued funding up to this point. And we are post-critical design review. And I point out as well that early this summer, which is really amazing time, a really a good demonstration of the technical prowess of the team, is we actually loaded Fury's flight software and used our ground control station in control of the X-62 Vista aircraft. So the X-62, for those uh, who may or may not know, is a highly modified F-16 out of Edwards Air Force Base mm. that essentially can pretend to be aircraft that it's not. And so actually what we did in, in May, just before Memorial Day, is we had Vista pretend to be Fury. So it flew and performed like Fury would. And we sent it commands from the ground control station like we would if there was a real Fury flying. And we have actually pictures and videos of the guys in the cockpit with their hands up off the controls in Vista flying around like Fury would. And so that's a really good risk reduction, a really good example of how an agile business like Blue Force in collaboration uh, with Andrew as well, is just going to accelerate this capability going forward. Not to date myself, but I remember when Vista was being uh, developed and writing about it when I was at Air Force Times like 30 years ago. So, uh, <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's amazing. It, it is an amazing capability. So let me um, just go back to an answer that you gave and ask you to talk a little bit about the future of air combat. The F-22 is seen as the highest manifestation of the air combat art, both in the weapons system, but also in the brute performance uh, of the jet. We've made it a little bit safer, better aids uh, on the platform to make it more maneuverable and reduce the load on, on the aviator and, and allow them to use it as a weapon system. But at the end of the day, we're finding SCAR in war game after war game, evaluation after evaluation, that you know, when you get into a merge with an AI-enabled platform, it basically kills you every single time. It does maneuvers you would not ordinarily think of even as the most creative fighter pilot. And it is really changing how it is we're likely to use it. And almost everything about NGAD, the next generation air dominance aircraft is classified. So for all we know, it is actually going to look and be very different than what it is we think it will look like in part because it'll be, you know, Sons of Fury, which sounds like a great band, that are going to be doing the fighting on, on your behalf. What does the future of air combat look like when you're bringing the artificial intelligence capability, the disposability, the technology, the software, all of these different elements and pieces, an ability to deploy its own subsystems from the platform, right? An ability to perhaps swarm from an uninhabited platform. I mean, what, is, what does this look like? And are we 
envisioning it the way it needs to be envisioned, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, I think this is a, a very big question that has a classic, you know, fighter pilot, it depends answer. I'm going to give some considerations as to how I think this is going to change over time. It has been made very clear by the United States government, actually leaned heavily on uh, comments that General Kelly, who's the commander of Air Combat Command right now, has said publicly where he just lacks capacity. He's saying that from from the seat as the four-star who's in charge of organizing, training, and equipping that front edge, pointy nose force that would go forward and support the combatant commanders and their needs. We just don't have the capacity. And so that's where I would just lean on the ability of software in combination with reasonable aircraft and in teaming with the manned assets. Because there's there's no doubt in my mind, manned assets are not going away. I would just say that there's a lot of AI angst maybe out there, a lot of discussion about what the future of AI or I'll just say machine learning is. And Skynet is not around the corner. It is not going to take over and usurp manned aircraft jobs. But what these things can do, what Fury can do when leveraging advanced software uh, is create that opportunity for a manned asset to be augmented in his or her capabilities. So when you are a four ship of F-22s, which is ready to go make a difference for our combatant commanders and what they desire and protect this country, if you now enable them to successfully command and control a handful of these aircraft each, uh, then they have the ability to sense the environment, make decisions off that environment, and then execute that best decision they can off the environment in order to satisfy our, our combatant commander needs for that mission. And so I, I would just say is the importance of getting affordable and capable mass, balancing the cost and exquisiteness with the ability to manufacture, which is exactly what we're doing, balancing the manufacturer and software and cost to create that capability and capacity balance that our operators need. That's where I kind of see the trend line going. Let me ask you a business question. There are literally, you know, scores, dozens, hundreds of companies that are working on unmanned technology all uh, around the world. Why Andril, even though it's a terrific bunch of guys with a lot of very interesting products and interesting approaches that are approaching this from the standpoint of wanting to change the business, right? I mean, in a sense, there is advantage to that because it's more than just a business, right? You're trying to de redefine the market space to a uh, degree. Why Andril and what what are the resources that you as the blue force element of this get from Andril in order to take you guys to the next level collectively? Andril is a product focused company, product first. And so we are willing, it has been publicly said by Brian in previous episodes, you can find Palmer lucky as well saying as in, in, in all the leadership of the Andril, we are a product focused company which is who is willing to leverage the resources that we have in order to accelerate through and get quickly to market the development, prototyping and fielding of all of these assets and all of these capabilities. And so I think that that is a differentiator, uh, number one. Number two, as a software focused company, Andrel harnesses some of the leading talent in that software development and, and autonomy space across industry and academia. And again, to accelerate and become the leader in that software development and fielding. And then what Blue Force has provided to this is this mature design 
that has been balanced, uh, that has undergone real world testing to validate the engineering is real and already has well-established manufacturing processes and quality control mechanisms that are required from any uh, meaningful aviation composites manufacturer. And so the, the combination of the advanced software and product focus with the manufacturing chops and background that Blue Force has, along with, again, just the mature, ready-to-go design, that, that's where I just think that the, the puzzle pieces of the two companies just fit really well together. Andrew Van Timmeren, the man helping the Andrew Fury qualify for its wings. Thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. Guys, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power Podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.